Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Burn the Boats by Pastor Sean Wood. Let us pray and then we'll come around God's Word. Father, I thank you because you're glorious. You allow us to see ever small amounts and glimpses of your glory, Lord, and I pray right now that just as we heard this morning, as your word goes forth, Lord, I'm asking for flesh and sinew to come and form upon the bones. Lord, let our hearts be open and our eyes be open in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. I want to anchor much of what I've got to say this morning from Luke chapter 5. We will jump to Matthew chapter 4 and we will uh, also be in Mark chapter 3. Uh, briefly as well as John chapter 1. But I want, to, I want to speak this morning about, and I will begin to uh, speak more about discipleship. This has become a big word in churches now, discipleship. How, how do we actually make disciples? And, and before I think we can even answer that question, we need to answer the question, what is a disciple and, and what is required of us? And so the only place we're going to find that is in the Gospels. The, the, the best analogy of that is Jesus and his disciples. We're going to begin looking at their journey this morning. But in the year 1519, there was a, there was a Spanish man by the name of Hernan Cortez. Hernan Cortez set sail for, for a little place called Veracruz in Mexico. And when he arrives in Veracruz, Mexico, he arrives with the mission to conquer this new land for Spain. But of course, when he hits the shoreline and he gets off, all of his men are somewhat dejected. His men are tired. His men are longing for home. And uh, Hernan Cortez will do something that has never been done before. He orders the men to set fire to the boats. And as the boats are burning on the shoreline, he turns to each and every one of his men and says, you now have no other options. And he says, we must press forward with the mission. The rest is history. If you know anything about Mexico, the rest is history. But I believe it's time for us as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. I don't think this is in the fine print we're going to find, but I do believe that Jesus would call everybody that would follow him. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to burn your boats. We're going to begin looking at some guys who did just that today, and we're going to have a look at their journey of what happened when they encountered Christ. Let's briefly look at what it is to be a disciple. What does it mean? What does the word disciple even mean? What does the Bible say it means? Basically, in the Greek, a disciple is a learner. A disciple's life is both one of thought, but also endeavour. And a disciple or the learner is not merely a pupil, but also an adherent. We are in enormous danger in the church today of simply being pupils of Jesus Christ and not adherents. I know many people that can recite Bible verses. I've met people that have sat in church pews for many, many years and they can tell you all of the doctrine, but they don't know Jesus. Jesus never asked us to learn a new philosophy. Jesus never asked or called anybody to grab hold of another good idea. Jesus asked us to come to know him and also not just to be a pupil but also to be an adherent and a follower of Christ. 
So a disciple is really an imitator of their teacher. The best way to describe a disciple is a disciple is a disciplined follower of Christ. And in this day and age, people don't like the word discipline. I know when I was in school, it was, it was only ever a threat. But we've removed discipline from schools and I've got to ask you, look what happened. I'm not saying that we should bring back that kind of uh, discipline in schools, but I was only ever threatened with a cane once. When I was in school, I was only ever threatened once. You know, I, I've got a cane in my cupboard, you know. And I said, no, you don't. That went out a long time ago. I knew that was an empty threat. But look what happens when you remove discipline. Discipline's a dirty word, but we need some more disciplined followers of Christ. As we come to Luke chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. It says, On one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing the nets. You're going to understand that some of the most adamant followers of Christ and some of the most holiest men in the Gospels are, of course, fishermen. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. If we, if we were to pick it up in Matthew chapter 4, we would be introduced to both Simon and Andrew. Who are these two guys? Simon, of course, we, be, we, we come to know Simon as Peter. And uh, these guys are fishermen also along with James and John, we're going to realise in a moment. But, but Simon, Peter and Andrew are brothers and... The calling of the first disciples uh, is the one event that is described differently by each person. But we know that Andrew is the first one to encounter Christ. We will see that in the Gospel of John. And he comes to, to, to Simon Peter and says that we found the Messiah. We'll get to that later on. But it's interesting because here is the Son of God. I always find this remarkable. The Son of God comes, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords comes. And first of all, he was born in a stable. This is just like God. This is just like God. When everybody's looking for him in the palace or at least in the temple, now he'll be born in a stable. And of course, when Jesus decides that, okay, now's the time to embark on my ministry and I'm going to need 12 disciples, all of us are thinking, surely he'll go to the temple. Surely he'll find some really good hearty followers in the temple. And that's not where he goes. He goes to the Sea of Galilee. And can I tell you, he couldn't have found any, any worse candidates from a physical point of view. Oh, great guys because they can fish, right? (laughs) Holy men. But you see, Galilean fishermen, they were known for their swearing. They were known for their debauchery. They were known to have a different accent. And I I haven't been to America, but I do know this. Uh, The people in the north of America, I can understand you when you speak English to me. The people in the south of America, I need a translator and I need some... I need, I need some footnotes if you're going to, because they speak. And that's what these Galilean guys were like. You know what? When Peter is warming himself by the fire, someone says, you've got to be one of his disciples. Why? You've got that same accent. Jesus goes to Simon and to Andrew. And what I love about this is, no matter how rough these guys are, no matter how distant they could be from God, Jesus wants them. Jesus wanted them. He goes out of his way after an all-night prayer meeting to call these two men 
along with others. The account of Peter and Andrew, of course, is the account of two very ordinary men. We start in point A, two very, very ordinary men. And by the time we get to point B, which is well into the book of Acts, we're going to see that these men are doing some extraordinary things for God. What happened in the middle? Jesus happened in the middle. And I want everybody to take encouragement this morning. You may look at yourself as ordinary this morning. You, you might be sitting here this morning going, you know what, I'm, I'm too old. Yeah, well, tell Moses that. God called Moses when he was 80. And Moses went on ministering until he was 120. So when you're 120, come and see me. You might be sitting here saying, I've got nothing to offer. What, what can I possibly bring to the table? And that's exactly what God is looking for. People that have nothing in their hands. These two guys have nothing to offer. These two guys are ordinary, swearing, debaucherous kind of guys. And Jesus says, I want you. It's remarkable. So Simon and Andrew, and he says to them, we find in Luke chapter 5, he says, put into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now these guys are cleaning their nets. These guys have, these guys have fished all night. I mean, have a listen to what uh, Peter says. He said, verse 5, and Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. It's like, it's like fishing with Reuben. I've got to take every opportunity I can get. <laughs> and Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and we've took nothing. We've, we've fished all night, we've cast our nets, we've worked the water all night. We've been fishing. We've just got about halfway through cleaning our nets. Not a very short process. And Jesus says, you know what? Chuck them all back in the boat and let's, let's, let's go out and have another go. Let down your nets. And I love the next four words that Peter says. You know, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing but at your word. If you want to encounter Christ, it sounds a little bit like that. If you want to encounter the supernatural in your life, it sounds a little bit like but at your word. You know, when Jesus asks us to do something, how many of us know that it seems illogical to begin with? I can testify to that. Three years ago, Jesus said, I want you to go and pastor a church. That sounds really illogical to me. It did. But experiencing the supernatural sounds like it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what has or hasn't happened. I'm going I'm to operate at your word. Let down your nets. Have a look at what happens. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Only happens on my kayak. (laughs) Verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help. And this is what I do. Reuben, come and help me lift this fish, because it's huge. But he signals to the guys in the other boat, come and help them. Why? Because the boat's about to sink. Now they've filled two boats. They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He uses those two words, O Lord. All of a sudden, Jesus, you're not an ordinary man anymore. Jesus, I've heard your teachings. There's evidence that the disciples had already heard the teachings of Jesus as he was beginning his ministry. But but he says, I haven't heard anybody like you before. 
And you might say to yourself, why would Jesus get them to cast their nets? Why? Because he wants to break down some walls in these guys' lives. And all of a sudden, Peter's in, in, he knows he's standing in the presence of the Son of God. I want to tell you something. I, I, can remember, I can remember watching a video. Somebody said to me many, many years ago, you've got to watch this video. And it was an American preacher and his testimony of a time when he went to heaven. And can I tell you, the whole one hour of that sounded like some guy that had gone down the shop for a, for a loaf of bread and a carton of milk. Doesn't sound very feasible to me. But when I look through the scriptures and when I find the men that were confronted with the reality in the presence of God, I find one very, very common thing. Uh, Isaiah. What did he say when he saw the Lord? He fell down and he said, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. What happened, what happened to John? John walks the earth with Jesus for three years. We get to the book of Revelation. He says, I heard a voice behind me and I turned. Why? Because I don't know who this is anymore. This is, this is a different Jesus. And when he sees this Jesus, he's clambering for words. He's clambering for words to describe what he sees. It's like his eyes are like the noonday sun. They're like that. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. I don't know how else to describe it. But John says, I fell down like a dead man. And when Peter gets confronted with the glory of Christ, two things Peter's absolutely aware of in the boat right now, the absolute gloriousness of the Son of God that stands before him and his overwhelming sinfulness. Every single person that comes close to the presence of God in the Bible that I see, they become aware of their overwhelming sinfulness. Careful what you pray for, friends. You want the presence of God? You want an increase of the presence of God? Careful what you pray for. We all want that. We all desire that. But it's messy. God begins lifting up the carpet. You can't sweep it under there anymore. God moves the couch out from the walls. Depart from me, he says, for I am a a sinful man. Reading on verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished. And that word astonished in the Greek speaks of being amazed. The best way to understand it is it is to be rendered immovable. We have two boatloads of guys that are just standing there going, I don't know what to say. I'm not in the presence of an ordinary man anymore. I'm in the presence of God. And what happens is these men in the boat encounter Christ. And when you encounter Christ, it will spearhead your life in a completely different direction. For, for Andrew, Andrew would take the gospel to what we know as Romania and Russia. He would follow Christ for some time, like all the other disciples, and he would take the gospel to Romania and Russia, and he would be crucified on an X-shaped cross in 62 AD. back in Rome. Simon Peter, uh, after many attempts to take his life, this scared, timid, bashful man, this one that denied Christ, this same Peter who right here, right now encounters Christ, this man will be crucified upside down by Nero at his request. He says, I am not worthy that you would crucify me in the same manner as my Lord, so please crucify me upside down and Nero honours his request. We'll get to James and John in a moment when we, when we reach them. But, but Jesus says to them, 
If we read in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We'll get to the fishers of men part later on, but the call for Jesus to his disciples is to follow me. I, I don't want you to follow another good idea. I don't want you to, I don't want you to follow another framework of philosophy. Uh, too many people have got good ideas. Nothing's, nothing's changed in over 2,000 years. The Greeks, the Greeks were a lazy bunch that used to sit around all the time and talk about the next great idea. None of them had any of them. What's the next great thing? What's the, what's the next best teaching? And what happens when Paul rolls into Athens and says, hey, I know someone that was raised from the dead. They're like, we need to hear you again. Because if what you say is true, we need to stop talking and start acting. That's exactly, that's exactly what the message came to the Greeks. It's like, if you're correct in what you're saying and a man was raised from the dead, we need to stop talking and just embrace this man because all philosophy's ended. That's basically what they were saying. Jesus calls them to follow him. Following doesn't mean from a distance from behind. We always think that we're following Christ from behind, but that's not what the Greek is here. The Greek word for follow and follow me, it means a a uniting of purpose and will. It's talking about a side by side. Jesus is not saying, follow me from back there. Jesus is saying, take my hand and follow me. What Jesus is asking these guys is, I want you to unite your will to my will. I want you to unite your purpose to my purpose. And here's the big one. Here's how you can tell whether you're saved. So many people say, I don't know whether I'm really saved. If you're heading in the same direction as Jesus, you're saved. If Jesus is your Lord, if you have embraced Christ as your Lord, the one fruit that you can look for is direction, not perfection. Oh, but you don't know how many mistakes I've made, Pastor. I don't need to know because I know how many mistakes these guys made. Jesus says, follow me. There are two, two invitations. One is a universal one. We'll get to that a little bit later as well. And the other one is a personal one. This is, this is Jesus eyeballing these guys and saying, you follow me. You follow. What I find amazing is Jesus will ask a series of these men. He does ask Simon. He does ask Andrew. He will ask James. He will ask John. He asks Levi, the tax collector. There's another great guy. You know, what a resume that guy's got. Tax collectors. Look them up. Those guys were charlatans. And every one of them, he says, follow me. None of them, not one of them says, where are we going? Not one of them. Because what does it matter? Same as Abraham. God calls Abraham to pack up his bat and ball, go and play cricket in a whole new pitch. Leave your family. He never asks where he's going. In fact, Hebrews tells us that Abraham packs up his bat and ball without knowing where he's going. And that's just like God. God will never give you the full picture to begin with. Obey this part, then he tells you the next. Obey this part, then he tells you the next. Jesus says to these guys, follow me. I, I love these words that we find in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. We're going to get to the word immediately. That's a beautiful word. What does it mean when Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men? It doesn't mean to grab your rod and a dirty great big hook and walk down the street. That's probably not what it means at all. But 
But there's an analogy that Jesus is drawing here. There's a, there's a physical metaphor that Jesus, he has called them and he's calling us to be fishers of men. And if we have a look at uh, fishermen, fishermen are keenly aware of the weather. You can, you can ask me on a, on a Sunday, what's the weather for the next week? And apart from the day I'm going fishing, I can't tell you. I've got no idea. What's, what's the weather going to be next Sunday, Pastor? I've got no idea and I couldn't care less because I'll be inside. It doesn't matter. What's the weather when you're going fishing, Pastor? Oh, I can tell you the wind direction. I can tell you the wind speed. I can tell you the temperature. I can tell you the barometric pressure. All of that I can list. And one thing that fishermen are keenly aware of, the conditions that surround the fish that affect them. That's why we... Church is done differently today than it was in the first century. Why? Because culture has changed. The conditions have changed. The the challenges have changed. Fishermen, the role of the fisherman is to throw the net and work the water. Have you ever noticed that? And the results quite often rest outside of our hands. Reuben knows that. Absolutely. God doesn't call us to, to make results. God calls us to cast our nets as fishers of men. But here's the big thing that fishermen do. Here's, here's one thing I've realised is uh, whenever I'm sitting in a kayak, I, I'm just guessing what's happening underneath the water. You want to know why? I can't exist in that realm. And the fish in the water going, I don't even know there's another realm out there. Like, they don't understand that. And if there's one thing that fishermen are doing constantly is we're taking fish and drawing them from one realm into another realm. We are... We are drawing them into another. There's only one man I've ever known that can cross the realms, and that was Jesus. He, he was able to cross from his realm into our realm and exist. We can't live in his realm. We think we can. But with all the sin that we were laden with, if we stepped into his realm, gone. And he's, he brings us into his realm. And when Jesus says to these guys, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, the discipleship process is taking people from one realm. Do you know fish are completely unaware, unaware there's another realm? You've got no idea. Do you know most people today really don't have any idea that there's another realm? And fishes are drawing people by differing methods. We are drawing people into another realm so that people can exist in ours. Matthew chapter 4 tells us that when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, it tells us that these men immediately, I love that word. Do you know that hesitation is the shortened form of procrastination? (laughs) You hesitate long enough, you'll drift into procrastination. We can sit around forever and talk about it. You know, I don't want to make a decision, I'll pray about it for a while. You ever heard that one? You come to somebody and say, I think we should do this, this, this. Oh, you know what? I'll pray about it and I'll let you know. You ever heard that one? Uh, these guys didn't hold a prayer meeting. These guys didn't go. Peter's married, by the way. We only find that out later on when Paul says, uh, I don't bring a wife with me like Cephas does, basically. So we know that Peter's married. Doesn't go back and consult his family. When we get to James and John, they're just going to jump out of the boat and leave the old man to fix everything. We're out of here. And if it wasn't bad enough to do that today, it was a slap in the face to do it in the first century. These guys didn't ask any questions. These guys didn't hesitate for a moment. These guys had encountered the God-man. And when that happens, nothing else actually matters. 
The boats, they don't matter. Burn them. We don't care. We know they don't burn the boats, literally. We know they go back fishing after the, after the crucifixion. But immediately speaks of confidence. There's no half-heartedness. There's no unbelief. Verse 9 of chapter 5 of Luke, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and also were James and John. And uh, James we probably know little about. James, the son of Zebedee, we know little about. And John we should know a lot about. The sons of Zebedee who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. But, but James and John, who are these guys? It's, James is not the half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the sceptical convert that becomes the bishop of Jerusalem. <laughs> and when they ransack the city of Jerusalem, the Romans, they, the first thing they do is they go to the temple and they chuck the high priest off the top of the temple and they chuck James off as well. But to their dismay, he gets up and dusts himself off and walks down the road, as recorded by Eusebius. But this James here, this is the son of Zebedee, but also the brother of John. And this guy is the one that in Acts chapter 12 is killed by Herod. So we know in Acts chapter 12 that uh, Herod locks up both James and Peter, kills James. The crowd thinks this is all right. We're in about 44 AD now, so this is very close to after the, the resurrection events of Christ. And Herod tries to kill Peter, but he is miraculously rescued. So James is killed in 44 AD. What we do know about Peter, what we do know about James, what we do know about John is this. They were Jesus Christ's inner circle. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the ones that Jesus would draw away, come watch and pray with me while these other guys stay over here. They were the inner circle. It was James and John that... Uh, wanted to be elevated and sit at the right hand of Christ, calling for much conjecture. And John, we should know about the Apostle John. The Apostle John is the only one that will die a natural death. The Apostle John spends his last days, as we heard from Dr. Andrew Corbett, he spends his last days ministering in Ephesus. And there, Eusebius tells some beautiful, beautiful stories uh, of of this wonderful Apostle. But we know that he begins to preach the gospel. He's, he's responsible for the one that he's written, uh, the gospel of John. Of course, we have three epistles written by him and, and Nero tries to kill him at the same time that he kills Paul. He puts him in a burning vat of oil. And when it has no effect on him, Nero in frustration says, get him out of my sight. And they put him on the Isle of Patmos where we have the book of Revelation. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day on Patmos. And then after some time, Nero dies under questionable circumstances. A new emperor seizes the throne and lets John go. And he spends his remaining days ministering in Ephesus. Eusebius records that in his last days, he was that old and feeble that they would pick him up to go to temple. They would pick him up and carry him like he was sitting on a throne. And the whole time he's he's saying, love one another, love one another, love one another. A message I think we should all grasp. So that's James and John and Jesus calls them all together. And I I love this word called because uh, Matthew chapter 4 says he called James and John. And this is a personal object. It It is a personal invitation. It is a personal summons. I'm calling you. Every person in this room has been called to follow Jesus Christ. And I've got some awesome news for you this morning. I didn't write these words. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words when he, uh, when he writes his book, um, Discipleship, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, when God calls a man, he bids him 
come and die. When Jesus Christ calls us, he calls each and every one of us to follow him. And following Christ means you've got to come to the point of the cross. And all too often we think the cross is where everything ends. (laughs) The cross is where everything begins. What happened on the road to the cross for Jesus? We know that Jesus laid down everything of his own will, everything of his own accord. God demands every single one of us, by the time we reach the point of the cross, we have left ourselves behind. Here's one thing I can tell you about the cross. You'll burn the boats to get there. Jesus burnt the boats. Jesus said, I've got no way out. There's no back door here. I used to work with guys in the forestry and I I always told them when we got on site in the morning, I said, we're here until we finish this. And immediately that I told them we had to finish this, they're looking for back doors. Oh yeah, but what about the weather? And and what about this? And what about, and and it's too hot and it's, are we going to have enough product? All of that stuff you don't need to worry about. You just need to know that you've got to finish this. It's kind of, forget the back doors. Burn the boat so that there's no way of going back. We're going to see as we work our way through the words of Christ. You see, Jesus never put this stuff in the fine print. You take out an insurance policy, you take out a bank loan, there's going to be a whole heck of fine print that nobody quite often reads. Jesus didn't put this stuff in the fine print. He said it straight from the front. Any who would come after me must take up their cross and follow me. You lay down your life. Lay down your will. Lay down your desires. That's the call of Christ to every single one. Verse 11 says, of Luke chapter 5, it says, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I want to challenge everybody in this room this morning as we read these words. What is, or should I say, who is your everything? Jesus came with a, mess- with a message, and although he had much to teach us and much, much to uh, unfold and unpack for us, here's one thing that Jesus came to do. He came to change our everything. <laughs> you see, the Pharisees, their everything was themselves. It was all about social status. It was all about importance. It was all about lording it over others. That's what religion does, you know. I was talking to a gentleman out here not, not so long ago, out here in the foyer, and he said to me, you know, he said, I'm not so sure about religion. I said, neither am I. <laughs> Praise God. I said, I don't like religion either. I said, but I said, I praise God that I can have a relationship because that's, this book's all about relationships. And I want to challenge you about what your everything is. And let's put ourselves in the shoes of these guys for a moment. Do you know you could have walked up to these disciples right now and you could have said to them, I'm going to take every single possession you have. I'm going to take your house. I'm going to take your boats. I'm going to take everything you've got inside of your house. I'm going to take it off you right now. And do you know, you could say, I'm going to take everything. And you know what they would say? They would say, knock yourself out. I already have everything right here. What happened to these guys is their everything changed. Now, I'm not saying go home and put the house on the market. Please, don't hear that. You can have all the the enjoyment. That's what Ecclesiastes teaches us. 
Ecclesiastes teaches us that you can enjoy the things of this life that God gives you, but God still must be number one. These guys left everything. They would say, we have everything. Could you, could you imagine for a moment everything is taken away from you? What, everything you have right now. Imagine that you don't have it anymore tomorrow when you wake up in the morning. Do you still have everything? Brings me to the point that I'd like to make from Mark chapter 3, and I'll turn and read it because there's a very important word when it comes to the calling of the first disciples that we need to understand here. Jesus has called us to follow him, and, and I know a lot of people say, well, you know, God's called us to, to preach the gospel. <laughs> he has. Jesus called us to preach the gospel. He's called us to cast out demons. He's called us to, to heal the sick and all that awesome stuff. And he has. Please hear me that he has. But I want to read a passage to you from Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 13. It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, have authority to cast out demons. Oh, hang on a second. So before we get to the preaching and the casting out demons, what were they called to do? Be with him. Number one. There is, uh, and I, I have known friends recently in, in this boat that have put their hand up in full-time ministry, pastors and others in full-time ministry, that put their hand up and said, you know what, I'm out. Um, this isn't for me anymore, I'm out. Great guys, definitely have the anointing of God on them. And when you begin to peel back the layers, you begin to find that there's a common problem. They had neglected being with Christ. And imagine a bank account that has absolutely zero in it. The only way that bank account gets any kind of positive balance is by you being with Christ. And what I'm trying to say here this morning is, before you run out wanting to change the world and do miracles, you've got nothing to give until you've been with Christ. I remember when I was at the Salvation Army, we had this freaky dude that was a science teacher. All science teachers must be freaky dudes. This guy was, he was freaky, but he used to do the, he used to do the kids' talks every Sunday. We used to have the kids come down the front and he'd do these little mini lessons. They were awesome. I learned more from that than listening to the preacher. And everyone said, amen. But he did this one, one day, he brought up these two nails and he brought up a, a magnet. And I've, I've used this one before. And he said, you know what? I'm going to touch this nail on the other nail and nothing happened. He said, now I'm going to take that nail. He said, I'm going to rub it up and down the magnet for a while. And while he was talking to the kids, he just rubbed it up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And then he put the magnet away and he takes the nail and now he can pick up that other nail. Not because of anything spectacular about the nail at all. It was still a two-inch nail. What was spectacular was the magnet. And what Mark chapter 3 here is saying to us, listen guys, you go out with all the magnetism in the world, but you won't have any magnetism until you spend some time with the most magnetic guy in the universe. Then you've got something to offer. Then you've got something in the bank. Jesus says, you know what, we'll get to preaching the gospel. We'll get to casting our demons. We'll get to healing the sick. But right now, 
be with me. And there are, there are periods as you read through the Gospels where Jesus takes his disciples aside, just him and them, so that they could be with him. Most of us have, uh, I, I can remember, um, I think Pastor Liz was there as well, but I can remember a couple of years ago we went to the A2A conference and they had some good speakers. They had a number of good speakers at the conference and, you know, you kind of walk away from these uh, times and you say, yeah, good speaker, well done, yeah, great message, well orchestrated, well put together. But there was one guy, man, I walked out of that room and said, not only is that guy a good speaker, but that guy's been with Christ. And the difference wasn't in him, the difference was in Jesus. In John chapter 1, I'll paraphrase, you can turn there and read it later if you like. In John chapter 1, we actually learn that Andrew becomes a disciple according to the testimony of John the Baptist. What happens is Andrew is actually a disciple of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says some of the most profound words in the Gospel of John. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And when he says that sentence, Andrew says, see you, John, I found someone better. I'm upgrading. Uh, And... And Andrew spends a little bit of time with with Jesus and then he runs over to Peter and he says some more profound words. He says, Peter, we have found the Messiah. I have found the Messiah. And in that one sentence, what Andrew is saying to Peter is, everything you've been hoping for, everything everybody's looking for, all of the promises in the prophets, everything that we're, we're, we're expecting, all of the rain clouds that people have been prophesying, it's here. And I want you to come and meet him. And then something profound happens is Simon gets his name changed. Jesus says, you know, you're Simon. Now you're going to be called Cephas. And then then another guy comes to Christ, a guy by the name of Philip. And Philip runs to a friend of his by the name of Bartholomew. But we don't know him as Bartholomew because he's called Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. And he runs to Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, we've found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says to him, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And you know what? I love Philip's words because Philip doesn't say, let's have an argument and a debate about it. Let's look at the prophets. Let's look at the scriptures. No, he says, uh, uh, come and have a look for yourself. And what Philip is saying is, I don't, need, I, don't, I don't need to say a single word here. If you come anywhere near Jesus, you're going to have your life changed. In fact, Nathaniel doesn't even get to sit down before Jesus says, here comes Nathaniel in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel says, How do you know me? Jesus says, well, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Every single person in this room, Jesus saw you. He saw all of the mistakes you would make. He saw the fact that you're not fishermen yet. He's going to change that. He saw the fact that you had weaknesses. He saw the fact that you had strengths. And just like these guys, he says, I want you to come and follow me. I want to ask if we can stand together this morning as I bring this to a close. I want to ask you a few questions. And the first one is this. Is everybody in this room ready to burn the boats? Because Jesus never put this in the fine print. And following Christ means we have to take away all of the back doors... We have to burn all the boats on the shore. There's no retreat now.
I want to ask you right now as you doing business with God in these moments, is he your everything? Can you honestly stand here this morning and say, you are my everything? I, going back about four or five years, I, I read a scripture in 1 Peter that says, sanctify the Lord. And to sanctify means to take from, from something that is ordinary and place it in the very special place. And Peter says, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. And I, I prayed a prayer that spearheaded my life in a completely dif- different direction. And that prayer was, Lord, sanctify yourself in my heart. And God began a process of removing everything else that is in there. He's still got a long way to go, I get that. But I pray that for every person in this room, right here this morning, that, that Jesus would become your everything. I pray, Lord God, right now, that you would sanctify yourself as holy in the hearts and lives of every single person in this room. Jesus is eyeballing every single one of us, not just you guys, but he's eyeballing me too and he's asking, will you follow me? Will you burn the boats on the shoreline and will you follow me? Your life's going to go in a completely different direction from this point onwards where you're going to, you're going to know some hardship, you're going to know some hard times, but, but I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to forsake you and I'm asking you to follow me. You don't have to put your hand up this morning. You don't have to come down the front. You can do business with God right now where you stand. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would fall upon every person. We read in the book of Acts, time and time again, the Holy Spirit fell and the Holy Spirit fell and the Holy Spirit fell. Holy Spirit, we need you to fall on us. We need you to so overtake us and so overcome us that you change who and what is our everything. Lord, we ask you to come and do that in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. It's a beautiful picture of just letting go of any bitterness or revenge and just saying, you know what, I'm not in the place of God. People have hurt me, yes. People have treated me unjustly, yes. If you're sitting in this room today and nobody has hurt you and nobody has treated you unjustly, then you are very, very rare. And Joseph says, you know what, I'm not in the place of God. I'm going to let all of that go. And he finishes with, I think, one of the most profound sentences in the Old Testament. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. When, when you put me in the pit, you wanted to kill me. When you sold me to Egypt, you wanted to forget about me. When, when, I, when I was put in jail... For all those long years when the, when the cupbearer forgot me, the goose, all of those guys, when all of that happened to me, you meant it for my evil. But isn't it wonderful how God is able to weave those threads? <laughs> Just no wonder, no wonder Jesus said when he refers to his people that we are sheep. Why? You get a group of sheep together. You get a group of 15, 20 sheep together and you try to push them in the one direction and see how you go. You're going to get two of them going this way. You're going to get two of them going that way. 
And what does God do? No matter the decisions you make, I'm going to keep you on the path. You're going to wander off, but I've got a stick. And Sometimes God needs a piece of 4B2 though, doesn't he? I call it the 4B2 theory where God's got a staff and he taps us. He says, oi. You get about three chances, I think. The second time he taps you again. The third time he gets a piece of 4B2 and smacks you around the chops. And how many of us have had points in our lives where God's had to smack us around the chops? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The testimony of Joseph is this. My life is littered with the fingerprints of God. I had the fingerprints of God on me when I was at the bottom of the pit. I had the fingerprints of God on me when I was in Egypt. I had the fingerprints of God on me when I was in jail. I now have the fingerprints of God on me while I am sitting in the position I am in Egypt. Why? Because if God doesn't gift me, I can't do what I'm doing as the Prime Minister of Egypt anyway. I've got the fingerprints of God all over me. And I want to talk to you as I bring this to a close. I want, to, I want to rewind from where we are today, 2,000 years from now, and I want to talk to you about another innocent man that was a long way from home. It's the God-man. And interestingly enough, the God-man would be sold for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. Judas sold the God-man for 30 pieces of silver. And another innocent man was separated from the father that he loved the most. Another innocent man was horribly and unjustly afflicted. Another innocent man was hanging on a cross, brutally beaten, horribly mistreated, and as all the movies have so far missed, hanging there naked. You weren't crucified with any clothes on. He's hanging naked. He's bleeding. He's mocked. He's rejected by the people that he came to save. He's hanging upon the cross with his blood dripping from the beams of the cross. And you know what? He's right where God wanted him. Three days later, that God-man would rise miraculously and supernaturally from the dead. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God. Jesus Christ of Nazareth has been risen and is alive today. But there was a point in history when Jesus Christ of Nazareth was far from his Father, separated from the God of all creation, whom he loved the most. He was horribly afflicted, brutally beaten, and he was there to preserve life. He was there to preserve our life. And as I was sharing with Steve this morning, Jesus is the saviour of the world, yes. Jesus is the son of God, yes. There's a lot of people that are happy to have Jesus on the cross. There's a lot of people that even say, I've had a discussion with a gentleman out here that says, you know what, in the first century, they were that bad, they needed Jesus. And after a couple of minutes conversation, he began to realise that we need Jesus just as much now. And Jesus has to go from being a saviour to being your saviour. Jesus has to go from being the Lord to being your Lord. Each and every one of us have the fingerprints of God on our lives. And I want to ask you, what will you do? 
to the one that was sent to preserve your life? How will you respond to him? Let's pray. Jesus, you are magnificent. And I gladly and happily stand behind this pulpit this morning and I confess, Jesus, you are my saviour. I happily and rejoicingly confess, Jesus, you are my Lord. I thank you, Jesus, that you endured all of that for me. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the fingerprints that you have left and I pray that you would open our eyes to the trace evidence that you have left in our lives and in our hearts, all bringing us back to yourself. Lord, open our eyes, I pray, in your wonderful, glorious and matchless name. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.